I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning, we are going to be looking at the fourth of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, the letter to Thyatira, which is often referred to as the corrupt church. Now, compromise and corruption are close cousins. Last week, we looked at the letter to Pergamum, which is often referred to as the compromising church. And we learned in that lesson that a little compromise leads to greater and greater compromise. Well, compromise left unchecked will eventually lead to full corruption, and that's what compromise eventually does. It fully corrupts. You know, if you remember last week, the, the couple of the definitions in the dictionary of compromise were, one, a weakening or a reduction of one's principles and standards, and then the last definition was to cause the impairment of something, and that's what compromise does. But a compromised bridge might still support weight for a time, but if it's left to weaken long enough, the impairment will eventually lead to a full corruption of structural integrity and a total collapse. And that's what we see in the church of Thyatira today. Um, there's other areas of life that the same truth applies. If we take compromises in healthy eating or living choices, right? Um, those small compromises might not you know, uh, cause health issues immediately, but over a long period of time, corruption eventually sets in and we can find ourselves sick and dying from those choices. And then, of course, spiritual compromise, left unchecked, can only result in corruption so bad that the only option, the only discipline, as we will see in the letter today, is death. And this is what we'll be looking at in the letter to Thyatira. Now, the issue, <clears throat> excuse me, in Thyatira was very similar to the issue in Pergamum. The challenge that the church had there was a toleration of false teaching, false doctrine, moral and religious compromise. But where Pergamum's compromise was largely a factor of, of being included in society, being included in life, in the community, um, their, their issue was more so, maybe this sin isn't so bad, we'll allow it in our church. Where that was the issue in Pergamum, Thyatira's compromise, which had led to full-blown internal corruption, was characterized by some there fully understanding the error of what they were doing and doing it anyways. Knowing that they were in disobedience to God with full, full comprehension and still choosing to do it anyways for reasons that we'll see in the letter. And really all of it was a result on a very high value that they placed on themselves. A high value they placed on their own comfort, their own pleasure, their own satisfaction, and the correspondingly low value that they placed on Jesus his truth, his way. You know, the challenge for every Christian, I believe, living in this world is to not love it and the things of it. That's the challenge. To place such a value on the world and the things of the world that we end up corrupting our own faith in pursuit of those things. And as we will see today, the church in Thyatira had a big struggle at valuing Christ above everything else. You know, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John said, do not love the world or the things of the world. Why? Because they're passing away. They're temporary. They're not forever. But in Philippians 3, 8, Paul said, I also consider everything to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Considering the world's value properly, placing the right value on the things in and of the world, ultimately means that we gain that which has the greatest value of all, Christ himself. The meaning of his presence in our lives and all that that means and all that comes with that. And we're gonna see that gaining Christ in him is exactly the promise that he gives to the church in Thyatira and all who conquer and overcome the obstacle of self at the expense of Christ. That's what we'll be looking at today, but first we're gonna spend some time worshiping God. You know, I am so encouraged by God's working in the world today. We mentioned last week the, the big revival that was taking place in Kentucky. Um, it's come to a close there in that location, but it has since spread to three other states and multiple other campuses, and, and it's really neat. It's, it's, it's primarily young people that are coming to realize 
that I am a sinner. Jesus is the answer. He is the hope. And he's always been the hope and he will continue to be the hope. And that's why we worship him because he is our hope. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And so join me in prayer and then we'll proclaim his name. Father, we love you so much. We thank you, God, for who you are and what you're doing in this world today. Lord, we know according to even the book we're studying in Revelation that things are going to continue to get darker. Things are going to continue to get immoral. Things are going to continue to get antichrist, Lord. We know that. But at the same time, Lord, the darkness just simply means the light will shine brighter. And we as your people are called to shine that light, Lord. God, we live in a world where it's, um, there's an ever-increasing pressure to compromise our faith, to blend our faith with other false beliefs and false religions, Lord. And God, you made a very clear statement when you said that you were the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that none would come to the Father but by you. Lord, I pray, God, that we would be a church and a people that proclaim that truth with our words, with our living, with our lives, in our workplaces, in our relationships, and everywhere, God, that people would come to know you as their hope, their Savior, their Lord. And so, God, we want to start today with proclaiming your name as your people, because we love you, because you are worthy, you are almighty, you are gracious and merciful, you are forgiving, but you are also just. And we thank you for all of it, Lord. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 18. So let's, uh, let's read aloud the words of this prophecy together. He says, Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction, unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now you may have noticed, um, but maybe not, This letter to Thyatira is the longest of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, Um, which is very interesting because Thyatira as a town is actually the smallest town of all seven, Um, or at least the least prominent of all the cities that received letters here in Revelation. Thyatira only had about 20 to 30,000 people at the time compared to Smyrna, which was estimated to have between 100 and 200,000. Um, but I've been having, you know, lots of fun with uh, the pictures of these places that we've been studying through the letters. I'm a big history and archaeology buff. You know, I like seeing old things. And so I was kind of disappointed <laughs> with the lack of any real archaeological images or artist renditions of Thyatira at the time. As, as a matter of fact, this is it. This is really the only pick of what's left of ancient Thyatira, right? This little square that is uh, currently existing in the middle of the modern Turkish city of Akashar. And that's really all that remains of ancient Thyatira there. Um, What we do know about the city comes largely from coins and such that were found there due to digging and stuff. But the real reason we don't have a whole lot of archaeological discovery is because it's literally all under the existing city. And so they haven't done a lot of digging there and whatnot. But what we do know comes from, like I said, coins and whatnot. And Thyatira was an ancient Greek city that um, 
existed on, on a road, a very long road through the long valleys between the city of Pergamum and Sardis. And so it was a, a city that uh, existed about 40 miles east of Pergamum. It was actually founded by Alexander the Great to be a military garrison to protect Pergamum. So if armies wanted to come and attack Pergamum, which ended up being the, the capital city of the kingdom of Pergamum before it became a Roman town, um, Thyatira was meant to be a stopgap. If you wanted to attack Pergamum, you had to go through Thyatira. And so this military garrison there um, was built, and that place, as a part of a military garrison, had a temple to Apollo, who was the son of Zeus, and that's whom the soldiers worshipped there primarily. But comparatively to the other cities and towns that we've been studying, Thyatira was pretty much just an unimportant unsophisticated, just a small place. It definitely wasn't a metropolis. It had no significant military in the Roman times, no political or administrative responsibility in the empire. It was a place that was never mistaken as a religious center or a place of major worship. It wasn't ever mistaken as a place of great beauty. It was just kind of your simple, out-of-the-way rural town. That's Thyatira. But what Thyatira was notable for was industry. Industry, production, and all the wealth that came with that. You see, Thyatira was a place dominated by guilds, merchant guilds. It was a place that was completely in control of these guilds. Now, guilds would be like labor unions today, okay? And I'm not here to say unions are good or bad, all right? Uh, but, but to think of what a guild was, it was like a labor union of the time. And so Thyatira as a city was a very blue-collar type of place. It's said that Thyatira had more guilds than any other Roman city in the province at the time. And based upon discoveries and coins and things, they've, they've found that there was a guild to leather workers and wool workers and weavers and bakers and tailors and candlestick makers, and that's probably where the nursery rhyme came from, and cobblers and potters and stone cutters and blacksmiths and cloth dyers and just so many others. There was a guild for every possible trade you could think of in this place, and it was a place that was just dominated by that. Now at the time, guilds were more than just like a labor union today. In Thyatira specifically, the guilds were the center of everything. They were the center of social life. They were the center of religious life as well as the center of work life. And like other towns of the time, the guilds all had a patron god or goddess that their particular guild worshipped, and it was no different there in Thyatira. However, most of the guilds worshipped Apollo because he was a carryover from when it was a military garrison as kind of the prime god of the city. So you could say that Thyatira is a town that was dominated by the corporations, a town and a place dominated by the corporations. If you lived in Thyatira, terms like profit and loss, overhead, investment, product, these types of terms were very commonplace in the language of the people. Concepts like master craftsmanship and quality of goods and apprenticeship, these concepts touched on everything in life there in Thyatira. The heat and fires of the forges, the sound of negotiation and trade, the, the logistics of export was everywhere. That's what this place was like. It was a place where the value and cost of everything dominated life and was the primary consideration for most people. And the people there in this town were extremely hardworking people who were very aware of what their effort and their time was worth. As a matter of fact, this was a place that was known in other places of scripture. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, uh, we read there of Paul's first recorded convert in Europe, Lydia, who it tells us in Acts 16, 14 that she was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. And purple at that time was a very expensive dye because it was very expensive to get it. It was hard to come by. And so we know that Thyatira was a place that existed in the time. And so it's to this town it's to the church in this town, Jesus writes. And he says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. 
You know, the guilds in Thyatira, they would periodically hold these great festivals, these great parties for all the members of their guild. You might think of it like the company Christmas party that you're familiar with today, where periodically the company would say, we're all gonna come together and we're all gonna celebrate. And these festivals were held predominantly in the temple to Apollo because he was like most of the guilds, the patron god of many of the guilds there in Thyatira. And so these these festivals, these parties, worship of Apollo was a major, major component of what took place there because if you appeased Apollo, he would then grant favor upon your guilt. And if you had Apollo's favor, well then, you know, you would, you know, goods would be good and sales would be up and the quality of your goods would continue to be good because obviously Apollo was appeased. And so risking the disfavor of Apollo on your guild, well, gosh, that was a big no-no. That was a big no-no, and it presented a huge problem for Christians because the worship of Apollo, as we will see in a bit, involved eating food sacrificed on the altars to Apollo and rampant sexual immorality. But I wanted to open up with this, this interesting detail because each one of these letters has been tailored to the city that they were um, written to. They're also tailored to represent a certain period of church history. They're also tailored to represent us today, to speak to issues we, we deal with today as believers. And Apollo, he was the sun god. He was also the son of Zeus. And what's very interesting is at the time, Apollo was often referred to as the son of God. And so Jesus opens this letter, thus says the Son of God. It's the only place in Revelation where Jesus is referred to with this title. Likely, I think, a direct rebuttal to the worship of Apollo, who was considered the Son of God at that time, but also a reminder of who Jesus is. If you're a student of the Bible, you might remember and know that the the title son of um, referred to biological offspring, but it also carried the idea of of someone that's having the exact nature or the exact express uh, essence of something else. And so when you see this title son of God throughout scripture, what it's referring to is that Jesus is the same in essence and nature as God the Father and God the Spirit. Same in essence in nature, but also different as God the Son because unlike the Father and Spirit, he was fully human at the same time. And so this is a phrase that John uses often in his writings to refer to Jesus Christ, especially when he's trying to establish that Jesus Christ is God, is the one true God, the only God, the second person of the Trinity, the promised Savior, the atoning sacrifice, the awaited King. And so thus says the son of God. And then it goes on to say the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. Again, each one of these letters as we've been studying through, you remember that Jesus takes a portion of his um, uh, vision that he gave to John in chapter one. And it's a portion that applies directly to the issue that this particular church was having. And so he pulls the, the picture of the fiery flame, his eyes being like fiery flame and his feet being like fine bronze from Revelation chapter one, verse 14, which there it said, and his eyes are like a fiery flame and his feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. I think that's a very important detail, specifically as he's writing to the church in Thyatira, because this imagery would ring very familiar to the people in this town whose lives were surrounded with industry and the forges of the blacksmiths and the fire of the smithing and all that would take place in that. But it's especially um, interesting detail because what is known of Thyatira is that amongst all the guilds, the most prominent of the guilds was the bronze smiths. And the bronze smiths were the most prominent because they specialized there in Thyatira in refining a special bronze, a special type of bronze that, that historians aren't 100% sure exactly what it is. Some call it electrum, but it was a specific type of alloy that could be polished to a mirror shine. And they didn't have mirrors like we have today, and so they would use this special type of bronze to polish down to a mirror shine as well as using bronze for armor and swords and helmets and and such that has been found in some of the digging there. Now, if you remember, bronze biblically often symbolizes and speaks of judgment. 
right? There's a picture in the Old Testament of the bronze altar that the people would bring their sacrifice to and it would be burned on this altar and it represented the place of judgment where the judgment of sin was taking place. And so bronze often has this idea here. And so in this vision, when he says his feet are like fine bronze, the idea there with feet implying movement is that Jesus will one day come in judgment. He is coming in judgment. He's gonna come in judgment on the world, and he's also gonna come in judgment of his church. He's coming in judgment of this church and those like this church. And so the idea there, especially going back to Revelation chapter one, was as Jesus is, is ministering to, to the world and to his church in this time, we're, we're in this age of grace where we have the opportunity with our feet to approach Christ to come to him on the basis of uh, his shed blood on the cross and to ask for forgiveness and grace and mercy. And, and we're currently in that time of his long suffering, but the time will come. And Revelation is gonna get into that in the rest of the book as we finish these letters to the churches. The time will come where judgment is gonna come upon the earth and where Jesus is gonna approach the earth then in his judgment. And in verse 21, he uses this phrase, unless they repent that you have an opportunity in this world now and today to get your life right with God, but you won't always have that opportunity. He is long-suffering, but it won't be forever that he'll wait, that he'll continually put his offer out to you to say, I love you, I wanna forgive you of your sin. Please respond to that, I want to forgive you, I want to adopt you into my family, I want, to be one of, want you to be one of my children. That opportunity will not always be before you. And for the Christians, those of us that may be dabbling in disobedience and living in ways that are, that are not approved by God, he's saying, look, I'm telling you to change your ways, change your ways, change your ways, because eventually discipline's gonna come. And he does discipline his children as any loving father would do, not because he's mad or he hates you, but because he wants to correct you so that you would stop doing that which is harmful to you and others. And so we see this picture that his discipline and the consequence and punishment for refusing to repent, it will come, and it is coming upon this church here, Thyatira. And then we see that picture of his eyes being like a fiery flame, which is again a reference to his penetrating, purifying gaze that sees all and knows all. And again, the, the bronze being fired in the fire and that fiery gaze tying back to what Thyatira was, was well aware of, the refining fires as they would put alloys and metals into these fires to purify them well aware of what this meant. And in verse 19, he goes on with his commendation. He opens up with the positive, and he starts with this positive by saying, I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, your service and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. So to this church in this place of industry, in this place of production, in this place of craftsmanship, he opens up and he says, I know your works. That word works in the Greek is ergon. It means your deeds, but it's also a word that refers to your product or your products or the fruit of your occupation. This is what this word means, I know your works. And so what is he saying here? I know what you're producing. I know the goods that are coming out of your life. I know the quality of your goods, right? He's speaking in the language that they understand. He says, I know. And then he says, I know that your last works are greater than the first. Like, I know that just like craftsmen, you're going from apprentices to master craftsmen in your craft. He goes, I'm aware, I see it. And what was it that they were producing? What was it that they were getting better at producing as their lives were going on with Jesus? He says, their love. That word is agape. It's the Greek word that refers to love without conditions a charitable love, a love that, that loves without expecting anything in return, right? That they were people who loved, they loved one another and they loved in their community, that they would, they would do things for people just simply out of a, of a call to love them and not saying, oh, well, you gotta pay me back, and, you know, and again, in the whole language of the time. Their faithfulness, that refers to their trust in the gospel and their trust in the message of the gospel and what it means. Their service, that word means work done for others as an occupation. It's a very specific Greek word. 
Now, I don't think it's referring to like, you know, full-time staff ministry or, you know, the idea of like, you know, I, I serve just because it's my job. The idea here is that they were serving because that's who they are and that's what they do. We're Christians, of course we serve. We're Christians, of course we give of ourselves and our time in practical service to one another and our brothers and sisters and the community we live in. And then he says your endurance, which is just simply the capacity to keep going in the face of difficulty. And it was difficult to keep going there as we're gonna see. But the natural product of being a child of God the natural byproduct, if you will, that which should naturally spring forth from a Christian, the Bible calls that fruit, right? And we have in scripture where it says the fruit of the spirit is love and everything that comes from that. That if you're a believer, you can't help but to bear fruit. It's just a byproduct of walking with God and studying his word and praising and worshiping him and sitting at his feet. It's just a natural result of being people who say, God, I'm gonna submit my life to you, my everything to you, including my job, my career, my vocation, my finances, so God, use me to accomplish what you want. The natural result of that is fruit, starting with love and everything after that. And Jesus says to this church, look, I I know what you're producing. And it's good, it's right, and it's the most valuable thing there in Thyatira. But then in verse 20, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So apparently in this hard-working, blue-collar town, there was a woman there that was teaching the, the believers in the church, the Christians, to do things that they shouldn't be doing. And you notice there, there's two very specific things pointed out. Committing sexual immorality and eating meat sacrificed to idols. Incidentally, these are the same exact two things that the church in Pergamum was rebuked for. That in their compromise, what they were doing was eating meat sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Both of these things were just very normal and natural parts of pagan worship at the time. But here in Thyatira, it was a very specific component of the company party. You went to the company party because your guild required it. Guess what you were also required to do? Partake in what was happening at the company party. Specifically, this pagan worship enacted through the sexual immorality and the the eating the meat sacrificed to the idols. The challenge for Christians there in Thyatira, if they refused to attend, then the guild that they were a part of would accuse them of offending Apollo. Don't you dare offend Apollo because then he's gonna get mad at our guild. He's gonna be upset with our craft and the quality would decline, as I said earlier. The sales would plummet. The market reputation of our particular guild would be tarnished. So you you have to do what we do. You have to do what we do or it'll affect the bottom line. That was what the people in Thyatira were being faced with. It was all about the bottom line. It was all about the profit and the loss and the margin. And so cheat, lie, steal, that's what it is today. I know you're a Christian, but I need you to fudge that report. Yeah, that's great, you pray and all that, you know, but hey, you, know, you, 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 you need to say this to the people you're trying to close so that you can close the deal, even though it's technically a lie. You need to cut these corners or do these things even though they violate your faith. And if you refused, well, for the guilds in those days, they really had one option, to expel you from the guild. That meant you would lose your job, But in Thyatira, it also meant that you would be blacklisted so no one else would hire you. Oh, the Leatherworker Guild fired you because you refused to go worship, and well, we're not gonna hire you. We don't want Apollo to be mad at our guild. We don't need people like you around here. If you remember in Pergamum, the, the pressure that the Christians faced for not saying you can worship Jesus and the other gods. The pressure in that, that res- meant that, that if, they, if they refused to say that, if they refused to go, yeah, you can worship both, it's okay. They would face exclusion from society, social life, and community. 
Even like Antipas, they could face death for their exclusive claims of Christ alone that say, I will not compromise my faith to toe the company line. But here in Thyatira, it wasn't just exclusion from social events in the community, it was they lost their jobs, their careers, their livelihood, their professional reputations. Their stance for Christ hit them where it hurts the most, right in their bank account. And isn't that the most uncomfortable hit that some of us can take, right? Because we gotta pay bills, we gotta keep the lights on, we gotta fill in the blank, right? So don't hit my bank account. Don't, don't affect my bottom line. Don't affect my income and my career. You, you can affect everything else, but not that. And the follow of Christ there in Thyatira, they had to ultimately make a choice. It was Jesus or their career and their professional reputation. Now this woman, it says, was encouraging people to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's basically her attending, encouraging the people to attend the festivities in the temple to Apollo. That it's okay, go ahead and do it. You know, after all, you're protecting your career. You're protecting your job. You, you gotta provide for your family, so it's okay to go participate in that pagan worship. It's okay to go do that. It's okay to toe the guild line, because after all, why should you have to give up your job or your career or your livelihood for Jesus? That's not fair. Jesus isn't paying your bills, he isn't paying your rent, so, so why make the guild upset at you? Jesus will understand. So go ahead, participate. Yeah, I know they just sacrificed that meat on the altar to Apollo and eating it is a very public representation that I'm worshiping Apollo, but Jesus will understand, go ahead and do it. You know, participate in those work flings, it's just, it's just what you do in the industry. It's okay if it protects your job and your money. And the accusation Jesus says to the church is you tolerate her. You tolerate her. That's a very interesting word because there's two major definitions for this word in the Greek. The first one is the common definition that we understand to permit or to allow, right? You tolerate them, it means you're allowing something to happen. But the other definition is to leave it to someone else to do meaning you should be, but you're leaving it to someone else to do. Very interesting definition, because what are they leaving her to do? It says she's teaching and deceiving the body. And apparently they were allowing that based upon her self-proclamation. Oh, I'm a prophetess. I speak for God. Now this isn't a critique and nor do we have the time to get into, oh, is this one of them woman teaching messages? <laughs> I've spent Apple time on that and there's studies on YouTube you could go look at with that. So it wasn't the fact that she was a woman. It was the fact of what she was teaching. Now there's some disagreement on whether this woman was, was in the church, like she was a member of the church or whether she was outside the church. Um, those that think that she was a member of the church, there's some details here that they, they look at and they go, the context of the letter clearly indicates that she was inside the church, so the teaching that, that she's being accused of that they were allowing was, was her teaching Bible studies or teaching at the gatherings. Um, they, they look at the, the definition of tolerate to leave it to someone else to do, to say, hey, you know, it was, it was a situation where the elders in the church were possibly leaving the teaching to her to do because they were like, well, I don't work here. I've got a job. I, I don't have time to feed and shepherd the flock. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not full time in this, so I don't have to be a part of that, right? I can't be a part of that. Um, it, it's not my responsibility, and so she was just kind of coming in and filling the gap. Some people look at it that way. Um, they also see her being called Jezebel, which we're gonna deal with in a moment, but Jezebel was a picture of someone that was outside the church brought into the fold of God's people. And so they go, that, that's proof that she was in the church. They also point to the fact that Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, meaning that she was probably approached like a member of the church. Hey, what you're teaching is wrong, you can't do that. And then the judgment on her results in all the churches knowing that Jesus examines the hearts and minds. And so they look at that and they go, she was inside the church. 
Some say no, she was actually outside the church, and the reason is is because in Thyatira, um, there was a fortune-telling shrine there that was presided over by a female oracle at the time whose name was Sambath, and she was considered a sibyl or a prophetess. And the, the sibyl or the prophetess of this particular shrine was someone who was there, and she said, I speak on behalf of all the gods. Right, I'm, I'm a fortune teller, right? So if you want to know what any of the gods think, including your God, including that Jesus, I, I speak for all of them. And so they think that this Jezebel is being referred to here was her. She was outside the church trying to say that she spoke for Jesus and leading people astray. Um, could be either. We don't know for sure, okay? Um, because people outside the church certainly can be described as as teaching. The, the word teaching there simply means to impart knowledge, right? So people outside the church um, are always seen to be teaching or influencing people. We have new age leaders all the time that are, that are saying stuff that people in the church go, oh, that sounds great. Um, people outside the church often claim to be spiritual leaders. Of course, people outside the church are given time to repent by God. And then, of course, when they are judged, it is definitely to be a notice to the church. So she could be in an inside or outside the church, but what is clear is that there were Christians inside the church following her teaching, following her teaching, saying, you know what? The stuff she's saying about go to the temple of Apollo and eat the meat and, you know, they, yeah, that, you know, we're, we're going to do that. But he calls her Jezebel. And that's probably not the actual name of this girl, um, but a characterization of her, this woman, because the readers would pick up on this. Jezebel was kind of a famous name, especially for Jewish readers. Uh, it wasn't a name that, that many people said, you know, when they, they gave birth to a little girl, we're going to name her Jezebel, right? It just didn't happen, right? So it was more of a characterization of we know what this, this woman is. And Jezebel in the Old Testament, she was the non-Jewish wife of the most corrupt king of Israel named Ahab. And when she came came into the kingdom, she brought all of her religious uh, pagan idolatry with her. And the primary sin of Jezebel in the Old Testament was that she led Israel into the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, two major pagan gods that were fertility gods or lust gods of the Canaanites. Now, both of these gods involved incredibly corrupt sexual immorality. And then specifically, Ashtaroth was later, uh, later became known as Aphrodite, who the Romans called Venus. Hang on to that detail for later, okay? But Jezebel in the Old Testament didn't so much care that people worshiped God. She was against the exclusivity of it. She would build altars to Baal and Ashtaroth right next to the altars of God, and, and her teaching, what she led and enticed people to do is worship at both. Oh, you could worship God, you could be the Christian, but, but also you can do these other pagan things and it's okay. But Jesus also goes on to point out a characteristic of this woman's teaching here in Revelation, and it's something that we see a lot today. In verse 24, he refers to the so-called secrets of Satan. Quote, right? There's quotes around it. Because he says the so-called secrets of Satan as they say. The idea here is it could be that she was saying, look, I'm, I'm a prophetess to all the gods, you know, from the fortune-telling shrine, and so, you know, I, I speak for all the gods, and so if you're really spiritually open, you should learn from all of them, right? You should listen to all the gods, including that Satan one, you know? If, I mean, if he's as powerful as you say he is, you should learn from him as well. Or she was inside the church masquerading as a spiritual leader and saying things like, I have the secret knowledge of God, I've discovered the secret knowledge of God, and you can only get it from me because, after all, I'm a prophetess. Right? At the time, it was the heresy of Gnosticism. Today, it's all kinds of stuff, right? A number of years ago, and I've referenced this in previous studies, there was a book written by Rhonda Byrne called The Secret. It is new age garbage. Stay away from that. It says, oh, yeah, no, God and Christianity, and yeah, and it mixes in all of this new age mysticism, and you'll just, just stay positive long enough, and you will manifest money in your bank account. I'm right there with many of you who have been in times of my life where I was manifesting all day long. Bank account didn't magically change, all right? But then in our modern culture, there's, there's recently some stuff coming out of places like Bethel Redding. Um, Pastor Mike Winger just did a huge video on a new book 
they put out. And it's just, oh, let's just manifest. And we could hear the, the audio of God. And, and it's all this new age garbage that they're trying to blend into it. And so it, it could be that this Jezebel was doing that type of thing in Thyatira. But it's all this unbiblical stuff that comes from self-ordained prophets with secrets that ultimately contradict scripture. Nothing new. But this is what was happening in Thyatira. A church that was producing great fruit, but they were tolerating this false teaching. They were tolerating either but just by allowing it, or those that were supposed to teach and feed the flock within the body were, were for one reason or another going, we can't, we can't, and they were just letting someone else do it. And so some were being led astray as a result, trying to live Christianity while allowing corrupting behavior in. And the whole idea that, you know, I'm, I'm for Jesus. I'm a Christian. I, I want to live for him, right? I'm, I'm all about Jesus. Until it costs me too much. Until it starts to affect my bottom line. Until I might have to get to that place where I say, God, I'm going to have to trust you if I lose my job, and I'm going to have to trust you with my finances, and God, I'm going to have to trust you with, with the, the, the scariest thing I could be in, in that place where I can't provide for myself or my family. I'm going to have to trust you. And what was happening here is some of the people would get to that point and go, nope, that's too much. Because I want my money. I want my career. I want my stuff. I want the comfort that comes with that, the security that comes with that, and that's the place where I'll compromise my faith and trust in Jesus. And thus, although the church was looking good on the outside, it was rotting and corrupting from the inside. Verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want, she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. And this is where we see the picture of those that were saying, no, we, we don't want to repent from this. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to keep doing it anyways. And in verse 22, Jesus says, Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. On some level, this woman was, was, was told or advised or confronted that, that her behavior and her teaching was wrong. But you know what I also see there is this wonderfully beautiful picture of how long-suffering our Lord and Savior is. That he will wait, and he will wait, and he will give time. I love that. Right? Sometimes we can be people who are real quick, right? Real quick, when someone makes a mistake, we want to drop the hammer. And that's not how Jesus interacts with us. Now, yes, the point is, is that there's a time where, okay, you, you've had time to correct and repent. But we see this wonderful picture of the patience of our Lord, especially in the midst of our sin and our wrongdoing. But he ultimately says, you like the bed so much, you Jezebel? I'll give you one. But it's going to be a bed full of disease and affliction. And then he says, those who commit adultery with her unless they repent of her works. So in this city of industry where the focus was all about producing and goods and the quality of your goods and profit loss and cost and value, in the middle of all this, her, her product, the product of her guild was sexual immorality and idolatry and worship of pagan gods, and that ran contrary. That ran contrary to the love and the faithfulness and the service and the endurance of the church. And Jesus is again saying, you can't live both the way of Christ and the way of the world specific context within the realm of your career and your work habit and your work ethic and, and all of that. You, you can't do both. And I think to this church, he's saying, you know this, and some of you are doing it anyways. Now, when he says, I'm gonna throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction, um, I don't believe that with her is indicating that like she was the one that everybody was hooking up with. Um, that word with there simply refers to one party bringing another to adopt a common attitude. So the idea is, is that what she was saying is okay and doing herself, others were participating as well. And again, the context is the sexual immorality and pagan worship in the temple of Apollo. And Jesus says to this church, her time's over. I gave her time to repent. She doesn't want to. So I will give her what she wants. But you, my children, you still have time to repent. You still have time to repent. And if you don't, 
If you willfully continue to act as her offspring, because it says her children, I will strike them dead. It's not referring to biological kids. It's referring to those who are offspring of her ideas and teaching. They will be struck dead. And that word death there literally means, refers to physical death. So it's likely referred to the disease and the affliction that would come from the sexual morality and STDs and all that type of stuff. But the idea here is that we can commit sin and refuse the opportunity to repent long enough. That that sin will grow from compromise to full-blown corruption in our lives. And the effect of that sin may, may no longer just be affecting us, but it's starting to infect those around us in the body of Christ and our friends and family. And there can come a time where God says, enough. I'm gonna allow the judgment of physical death to save you and those around you from the effects of this sin. He says in verse 23, then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines the minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. There are plenty of examples throughout scripture of God allowing physical death in response to willful, regular sin. You have the examples of Ananias and Sapphira, right? They lied to the Holy Spirit. God struck them dead, like physically dead. In 1 Corinthians 11.30, you have Paul talking to the church there and saying, guys, you've turned communion into a party. Like, you've turned communion into a drunken revelry, and that's why some of you have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for you've died. You've actually suffered physical death as a result of the sin. In the Old Testament, there's, there's many sins that, that required the death penalty, and the idea is that today, there's, there's lots that a believer can do sin-wise that would literally kill them. You go engage in sexual immorality at work and cheat on your spouse with some work fling. You can get a disease that'll kill you. You can participate in, in, in going to the bar after work because after all you want to secure that promotion and doing the drugs and getting involved in that to the point where it can kill you literally. And when God allows this type of judgment, it should always be a notice to those in the church that we should take notice of because God knows, you're not getting away with it. God knows, he's just being patient with you. He's saying to you, unless you repent, you still have time. But if you don't, discipline will come. If you don't stop, the time will come Well, he will indeed give you the wages that you have earned from your work, the wages of that sin. And in Thyatira, the wage of sexual immorality was disease and death. My question to them would be, was it worth it? To protect your career, your income, your vocation, your professional reputation, you're dead now. Was it worth it? We're not talking about a salvational issue here. I don't believe that's what he's talking about. Yeah, you may be in heaven, but, but all that you were trying to protect and preserve in this world and hoard and, you know, and I'm gonna compromise, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what I know God says is wrong because I, I have to protect my, 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 my comfort and my income and all these things, was it worth it? I would ask them, was, was the cost of compromising your faith to the point of corruption worth it? Was the value of what the world had to offer in, in terms of job security and career and professional reputation, was, was the value of that so much more than, than glorifying Jesus Christ in obedience that you'd whore yourself out to it? It was a very important question then, and it's a very important question today. Because like, all of God's people for all time, we are still called to trust God with our finances. We're still called to trust God with our income. We're called to trust God with our earning. We're called to maintain our work ethic in a way that glorifies Christ, even if it costs us because we trust Almighty God. And I think there's far too many that that's the line for them. I'll trust God in everything else, but not when it comes to that. That I will lie and I will cheat and I will steal. 
and I will find ways to justify that in my work life because after all, after all what? God doesn't know, God can't take care of you. And it's like, yeah, we're in a tough time. We're in a tough season in our world. We're in a recession, or not. Um, you know, gas is so much cheaper than it was after they jacked it up to $8 a gallon at $5 a gallon still, right? And it's just, what? It's tough, it's, it's a difficult world, financially, for a lot of us. But God hasn't changed. And God's call to his people to trust him with even that hasn't changed. And God's call to be people who, who are sacrificial in their, in their giving of their time and giving of their resources and their ability to help one another, none of that has changed even when it's a difficult economic season. And yet sometimes we'll take the easy road out because it's hard to trust in those times. And we miss out on what God has for us. But even worse is we make the compromises to protect our finances instead of trusting God that we might lose our opportunity to earn. And God says, I can't allow that. Discipline is gonna come. In trying to keep your job, you might lose it anyways, but not because God called you and moved you and is doing this miracle, but because he had to let judgment take place in your life. And the question is always, was it worth it? Because we know, we've experienced, God takes care of his own. But if you're corrupting your faith and corrupting your faith in your vocation and your professional life and your career and your finances, you're, if you're letting corruption take place there, just to protect, just to hold on, he's saying to us today, repent, lest judgment come upon you. Repent, stop with the willful corrupt behavior in an attempt to, to protect yourself financially or vocationally. And so verse 24, he says, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. Not all of you in the church are engaged in this, Jesus says, I know it. Just stop tolerating it. Stop allowing it, that is all. When, you're, when your coworker tells you about the, the thing they're doing at work, stop going, oh, wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> Say, no, that's not okay. I had a situation once years ago, I had a friend who um, was a Christian brother and he owned a mobile notary company. This was back in 2008, 2009 and I was going through a really rough patch in life at the time, right? You ever been in that season where you're like, how many uh, uh, pieces of change can I find in the couch and maybe I could order off the Taco Bell dollar menu? You ever been there, right? <laughs> been there a few times. And, and he was like, hey man, my company's doing well. Uh, get your, become a notary and I'll hire you. And, and so I did that and started working for him and, and he was just, he was earning 30K a month at the time from his mobile notary business. And, I thought, wow, he's doing pretty good. And he's like, hey man, I'd love to bring you on board. And so I started working for him. And then I found out very quickly that um, he would backdate documents all the time, which is illegal for a notary, right? It's, it's like, you're supposed to say, today is the fifth and we're signing it on the fifth, but sometimes they want you to date it for you know, the third because it needs to get processed. You know? and, and he would just do that. And I'd be like, bro, isn't that illegal? Oh, that's, that's just what you do in the industry. That's, everybody does that. That wasn't my question. Isn't it illegal? <laughs> well, yeah, but it's just a common, you know, and he asked me to go on a job once, and he goes, oh, we need to date this, and I was like, I can't do that. And he's like, well, you know, and I'm like, you can go do that, but I can't do that. But I would tell him, I'm like, bro, you're going to lose your business. You're going to lose your income. God is not going to tolerate this, and you need to Stop. Well, 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 well. Well, guess what happened? In 2008, the mortgage industry collapsed overnight. And in one month, he lost every single one of his clients and went from $30,000 a month in income to zero in 30 days. Two months before that, he had just bought a brand new house. 
lost everything. He lost everything, and years and years later, I had an opportunity to talk to him, and he's like, I should have listened to you. <laughs> I'm like, you should have listened to the Lord, not me. <laughs> like, you know, you, you, you can't cut those corners. But Jesus is saying, not everybody. So hold on. Remain firmly committed to your faith, even in the workplace, with your work ethic, you know? Because this life, the Bible tells us this life is but a vapor, and Jesus is coming. And, and there's no hardship we can ever experience here on this earth, specifically in context of saying, I'm gonna take a stand for Jesus even if it costs me vocationally. There is no hardship we can ever experience that compares to the weight of the glory that is to come for those who trust in Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to see that, sometimes it's hard to believe that, but it is true. And so today, I'm just challenging all of us, take an evaluation of your life, right? Is there any difference between the way you live and the way your coworkers live? Or how about how you go about your work? How you accomplish your job? Is there a difference between you as a Christian and your unsaved coworkers and how you close the deal? How you accomplish the task, how you make a buck, do you lie, do you cheat? Is there any difference between the things you say and the language you use as a Christian in that workplace? And then even in a broader picture, how about the way you, you spend your money? The way you treat your spouse, are, 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 you, are you doing things in your work life to, to fit in and protect yourself that you know Jesus is like, no, I don't want you doing that just so you could maintain your job or, or get that promotion or appease your supervisor? Are you, are you mixing the world's ways with your faith? Because the teachings of Christ, they're not just for Sunday morning, people. They're for every single day and moment of our lives. And then he closes with this. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter and he will shatter them like pottery just as I have received this from my father. And I will also give him the morning star. And so there's two things promised here to those who overcome, those who are victorious over the temptation to, to willingly or, or willfully engage in, in Christ dishonoring behavior to protect their vocation, protect, to protect their income or their career. Two things, he says, I'll give you authority and I'll give you the morning star. So the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end. Again, Jesus is using the same language here because that word keeps means to conform your practice to and that word works means a product produced. He's still speaking the language of industry to these blue collar people in Thyatira. He's still speaking to them in, in the concepts they understand. He goes, look, the one who keeps my works to the end the one whose work ethic is to continue producing God's goods. Spiritual fruit, not rotten fruit. I will give them authority. The right to command, or in terms that they would understand in Thyatira, you'll one day be the boss. You'll one day be the boss. You may be suffering under a difficult supervisor, a difficult boss, a difficult CEO. You may be languishing under this pressure to conform to their ways and to do things that are dishonoring to God, but you know what, hang on. Because one day you'll be the boss. One day you'll have the authority. And he quotes in verse 27, he's quoting from Psalm, Psalm 2, which is interesting, because in Psalm chapter 2, it's a psalm where he's writing to the kings, right? He's writing to the bosses of the earth. And he basically says in Psalm 2, I'm the real boss. I'm the king of kings. But I'm not just the boss. I'm the owner of the company. And he goes, and I'm going to come back one day. I'm going to come back one day and check on you. And he's going to come back in power and authority as the owner and so here he quotes from Psalm 2 and he says to his kids who overcome, who conquer, who emerge victorious, he goes, look, keep producing the goods that matter 
Keep producing the goods that have the most value, right? God's works, the fruit of the spirit. Stand firm in, in, in being who he's called you to be, even there in the workplace. Endure the hardship that you're under from the world's supervisors or your union leaders or the CEOs or whatever it may be. Stay faithful. Stay Christ-like in your job, in your business, in your work ethic, knowing that one day you're gonna be the boss not to crack the whip the way, the way they're doing, but to rule in righteousness as a co-heir with Christ. You'll have the authority over them. And then he closes with the statement where he says, I also give them the morning star. It's kind of a weird afterthought statement. Oh, by the way, I almost forgot this. But that's not what he means there. Because the morning star, I believe, is a reference back to, um, well, two things, but, but remember that reference to Jezebel, right? Jezebel came into the Israel kingdom. She brought the worship of Baal, brought the worship of the Ashtoreths, and Ashtoreth ended up becoming Aphrodite, who was the Greek god, and then the Romans adopted that Greek god and renamed her Venus. Well, Venus is known as the brightest star in the early sky. It's the first star you could see right before dawn, and guess what it's called? The morning star. And when you saw the morning star, you knew that darkness was about to break. Seeing the morning star was the hope that the light of day was dawning. But then in Revelation 22:16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David and the bright morning star. You know, in Isaiah, it was prophesied that the ministry of Jesus would be one of, of bringing the light of truth into a world that was walking in darkness. And Jesus is saying here, look, I'm the light of the world. I am the bright morning star. I am the hope that things will get better, not Venus. I am the son of God, not Apollo. I am your hope. Trust in me. Keep your faith in me. Live for me no matter what the cost is. Value your walk with me and your relationship with me high above anything else in this world. Don't trade your faith for the temporary wealth and comfort and approval of this world. I will take care of you. Now, that doesn't mean riches and stuff necessarily, but it does mean that the fruit of his spirit will be richly born in your life. And the effect of that fruit will have a powerful effect in the world around you. And when all is said and done, and when this world and all it has passes away into nothing, you will have Christ, whose value surpasses everything. So the lordship of Jesus, it has to touch every area of our lives, every area of our lives, including our work and our finances and our work ethic. And if we are people who claim that Christ is our Lord, if he is indeed our Lord, then he has to be Lord of our education, Lord of our business practices, Lord of our social activities, Lord of our free time. He's Lord over everything. And, and his truth has to guide our choices and our responses to the values of society. When society says, this is what's important, this is how you win, this is how you close the deal, this is how you maximize your profits, and it's contrary to God, you go, I'm not gonna do that. I can't do that. And if it's gonna cost me my job, if it's gonna cost me that promotion, if it's gonna cost me whatever, God knows and he will take care of me. But we can't allow false teaching in, the, in our lives around us that would, that would cause us to embrace sin as was happening in Thyatira. Instead, we have to live holy lives because we're in this world but not of this world. We're witnesses to the world, not participants of the world. You know, the reality is that as people, as humans, we tend to emulate those we spend the most time with. And for most of us, we spend the most time <laughs> with our coworkers. Eight hours a day, 40 hours a week for many. And we tend to borrow the thoughts and attitudes from the people we're around the most, from the books we read, stuff we watch or listen to, and, and, and sometimes it happens almost without us knowing it. But as Christians, our goal is, is to always be impacted by the word of God. 
to remain faithful and truthful to him so as to then impact the world around us for Jesus, including the workplace. To not conform to the ways of the world, but to, but to see the world change for him. To not take compromises that lead to corruptions just to protect our bottom line, but to trust Jesus with all of that. And so let's commit to being those people. Because in Revelation 2.29, he says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And I pray we're hearing him. I pray you're hearing him. And if God is speaking to you this morning about things where he's going, huh, tap, tap, you know what I'm talking about. Listen. Listen. Repent of those things while the time is now lest the discipline and the judgment fall upon you. It's a serious warning. Trust him with all that you're fearful of losing. Trust him with it. Knowing that one day you'll be in authority with him. And when all is said and done, you're gonna have Jesus, the most important thing of all. Amen? Let's pray. God, we, we thank you and we trust you, Lord. We know, God, that we, we live in a world, Lord, and, and most of us would, would fall into that, that blue-collar category, Lord, where, where we're not the CEOs and the billionaires, Lord. We're just the, the, the middle-class people, Lord, small business owners, just, just trying to live life and get by, God. And, Lord, we're in a season in our world right now where, where economically it's tough, especially in California. And yet, Lord, you do not and have not changed. And even then, Lord, you say, trust me. And God, your, your word hasn't changed. God, your call for us to be generous people with our time and our resources and our effort and our skills and our talents, Lord, your call to be those people doesn't change when the economics change, Lord. We know, God, that you are our Father. We know, Lord, that, that when we look at the lilies of the field and we see how you've arrayed them and taken care of them, Lord, how much more value are we than they? Help us, Lord, where we struggle with trusting you in these things. Help us, Lord, that we wouldn't corrupt our faith in the workplace as to protect our bottom line. That we wouldn't corrupt our faith and do what the world does when it comes to earning and and vocation and career and all that, we wouldn't corrupt our faith to protect what you've given us as if we could hang on to it, Lord. But help us to trust you, God. Help us to be people that have that Christ-like work ethic in all times and all ways, that would stand for righteousness and refuse to do, which would bring dishonor to your name, Lord. And that in those moments where it is fearful to do so, God, we ask and I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room and watching online that your Holy Spirit would just fill them and give them the strength to stand for you. And Lord, this isn't a call for everybody to go quit their job, Lord. It's a call to listen to the Holy Spirit. Lord, if you're calling us to stay in a place, to be a light, that we would be that light. But if you're calling us to take a stand that might risk our place, we trust you. We love you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, God bless you guys, let's worship.